Welcome to Side Projects. Yes. Welcome to Side Projects. I like that. (laughs) Okay. All right. All right. (laughs) Hey. (laughs) Hello, Brian. Uh, (laughs) Hello, Umble. Hello. And uh, hello, everybody else. Welcome to Side Projects. Um, today, we're very excited to uh, share the fruits of our, I guess, first full-fledged collaboration, mm-hmm. perhaps, mm-hmm. would you say? Yeah, I would say that. Yeah. Yes, we have. We will be sharing a reading performed by uh, Ray Defterius of the Hand Tool Book Review Podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it's a reading of John Ruskin. Yeah. And Ray provides a lot of background for and context for John Ruskin mm-hmm. as well as for and some comments on the reading and stuff. Yeah. Wouldn't you say Umble? Yeah. Am I missing anything? No, no, it was really good. I I I would venture to say he sounds more professional than we do. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, whoa. Yeah. <laughs> really good. Okay. <laughs> there was one part in the reading when he said uh he said that it would be really nice to see uh some of Ruskin's uh, writings moved from the sidelines to center stage, mm-hmm. something along those lines. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking the same thing except about Ray. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, then I guess before we get into that, though, we should share a little bit about what um, the John C. Campbell Folk School and the North House Folk School have coming up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the announcements that we do for um for like December will be the things that are happening in January, just so everybody kind of understands that. Or at least that's what we're trying to do. So news from North House Folk School on the shores of Lake Superior is encouraging folks to check out their wide variety of online and in-person courses. In January, they have a variety of things to choose from online. Um And they've got, let's see, bird carving. That's an online course. Needle felted critters. Oh. They've got a home sausage making webinar, which is awesome. I definitely am interested in that one. And there's another. It's the one time you want to learn how the sausage is made. (laughs) But I always want to know. I don't follow these rules. (laughs) Uh, anyway, they've got a ton of stuff online. You have to look through it because I can't just tell you every single one. There's there's so many interesting things. Um, and for those of you who actually have the ability to make it up to North House, there are all sorts of in-person classes, all with the appropriate um, pandemic-related safety precautions. So they've got uh, craft your own birch ski making. They've got... Whoa. Yeah, introduction to floor loom weaving, which would be awesome. Turn uh, your own wooden bowl. There's turning the wooden bowl for marginalized genders. Um, handwoven wool tote bag. All kinds of stuff. It's just, I don't know. They always have something going on and they're still going strong. And I think that is all we have oh they also have free weekly programming and webinars and videos you just really go to their website um 
which is northhouse.org, and you will find tons and tons of stuff to do this winter. So I encourage everyone to check it out. Sweet. You can cuddle up next to your felted critter <laughs> and learn more stuff online. Right. <laughs> Coming from the John C. Campbell Folk School, instead of resuming classes on January 3rd, as previously announced, um, they will now be resuming on May 2nd of 2021 in response to the CDC's guidelines and with the surge of COVID-19 cases and colder weather. And um, yeah, just trying to keep everyone safe, community staff and students and instructors. Mm -hmm. But in the meantime, there's still plenty of ways to connect with the folk school. You can sign up for e-news and follow them on Instagram and Facebook at John C. Campbell Folk School. Anyone can sign up for their newsletter at folkschool.org, and that is um, the best way to stay connected and learn about upcoming virtual demos, school news, craft shop, etc. cetera. Mm -hmm. And then also the 2021 scholarship application is open, and they would love for people to apply. Um, applying for a scholarship can happen through the tab on the scholarships tab down on the left-hand side of their webpage. And you can choose between uh, May through June 2021 classes, but their catalog for the rest of the year will open up in January. So keep that in mind. Mm. It seems like it's a uh, like a rolling admission for the scholarship. Like you oh. apply for the scholarship and if you get it, then you apply to whatever you sign up for whatever class you want to do. Oh, okay. It's not like you're applying for the class first and then the scholarship second. So, oh, just do the scholarship if you're at all interested yeah. and then pick your class after that. Ah, <laughs> interesting. But yeah. So yeah. And thank you again to uh, North House and John C. Campbell for your support of the show. Yes. Thank you very much. Well, down to business then. <laughs> all right. All right. All right. <laughs> Coffee and rust. Okie dokie, Ray. <laughs> what do you have for us, Ray? Everyone pour your coffee. Ah, oh, dang, I wish I had coffee right now next to me so that I could make like a good sipping noise <laughs> we were getting ready to enjoy uh, coffee and Ruskins. Yes. Um, although there's not multiple, just one Ruskin, but also, but yeah, coffee and Ruskins. Well, no one eats it. just one Ruskin. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, Ray will give you a little background on who John Ruskin is um, and also sort of the impact that his writings and ideas had at the turn of the 20th century. And after providing a little bit of context, he shares a reading for us. And after which we'll attempt to comment on it. <laughs> anyway, okay, Ray, take it away. Hello, craft friends. I'm Ray Defterius from the Hand Tool Book Review. And you're listening to Cut the Craft with Amy Umble and Brian Beidler. When I first listened to the Side Projects podcast, I knew that I just had to contribute. Admittedly, as a lover of books as well as woodwork, I'm a bit biased here, but I think that there is something special about reading an important text aloud. The author that immediately came to my mind was John Ruskin. Many listeners will be familiar with the arts and crafts movement. It was a reaction against the perceived impoverishment of the decorative arts and the conditions in which they were produced and the movement flourished in Europe and North America between about 1880 and 1920. In Japan, 
It emerged in the 1920s as the Mingay movement. It stood for traditional craftsmanship, but had an important basis of social reform and was anti-industrial in its orientation. Although in recent years its influence on society at large has diminished somewhat, it remains important to craftspeople, designers, makers and social reformists to this day. Normally, the first people referenced in woodworking circles are Morris and Ruskin and Suetso Yonagi. And while Morris's practical implementation of many of the movement's core principles are then explained further in articles, Ruskin is almost the side note that never gets explained. And yet Ruskin's political ideas, and unto this last in particular, proved to be highly influential. His ideas transcended boundaries and ideologies and reached across the world. Tolstoy described him as one of the most remarkable men, not only of England and of our generation, but of all countries and times, rendering his ideas into Russian. Proust helped translate his works into French. Gandhi wrote of the magic spell cast onto him by Unto This Last and paraphrased the works in Gujarati. In Japan, Ryuzo Mikimoto collaborated in Ruskin's translations and established the Ruskin Society of Tokyo. In fact, many people went further, and in the late 19th century, utopian socialist Ruskin colonies attempted to put his political ideas into practice. Professionally, he was considered the leading art critic of the Victorian age, and I think that it is particularly relevant that his ideas were formulated and rooted firmly in the concepts of beauty. His story is controversial, and he attracted fierce critics and personal attacks in his lifetime. At the same time, he was born into a life of privilege, and many of his ideas came from travelling widely in continental Europe, supported by his father's wealth. However, I believe that vilifying him or canonising him are equally inappropriate. No doubt as a person he had failings and can be attacked or criticised if you choose. However, his ideas have touched me deeply as a hobbyist woodworker, struggling to come to terms with some of the big issues that unchecked capitalism continue to create to this day. I'd suggest that in a world confronted by pandemics and climate change, equality and diversity, perhaps there are some timeless concepts that we can learn from. At the very least, we can give him his due in terms of his ideas and move him from side note to centre stage. It was with this in mind that I began to record a narration of what I'm calling coffee and Ruskins in the morning. Brian, I know this is not a tactical mouse calibre joke, but I hope you enjoy it nonetheless. There are four essays in his work unto this last. The first deals with the relationship between employees and employers. When published, worker strikes were particularly severe, and it is no surprise that he starts by addressing this relationship in the essay entitled The Roots of Honour. It is possible that the listener might find some of what is being said to be a self-evident truth, and yet at the same time these thoughts were revolutionary, to the extent that after the first four essays were published by Raskin, the remaining four were cancelled. This is how controversial they were. Enough of me. Let's hear what he had to say. The first vital problem which political economy has to deal with, the relation between employer and employed, and at a severe crisis when lives in multitude and wealth in masses are at stake, the political economists are helpless, practically mute, 
No demonstrable solution of the difficulty can be given by them, such as may convince or calm the opposing parties. Obstinately the masters take one view of the matter, obstinately the operatives another, and no political science can set them at one. None of the pleaders ever seeming to remember that it does not absolutely or always follow that the persons must be antagonistic because their interests are. If there is only a crust of bread in the house, and mother and children are starving, their interests are not the same. If the mother eats it, the children want it. If the children eat it, the mother must go hungry to her work. Yet it does not necessarily follow that there will be antagonism between them, that they will fight for the crust, and that the mother, being strongest, will get it and eat it. Neither, in any other case, whatever the relations of the persons may be, can it be assumed for certain that, because their interests are diverse, they must necessarily regard each other with hostility and use violence or cunning to obtain the advantage. It can never be shown generally either that the interests of master and labourer are alike, or that they are opposed, for according to circumstances they may be either. It is indeed always the interest of both that the work should be rightly done and a just price obtained for it. It is not the master's interest to pay wages so low as to leave the men sickly and depressed, nor the workman's interest to be paid high wages if the smallness of the master's profit hinders him from enlarging his business or conducting it in a safe and liberal way. A stoker ought not to desire high pay if the company is too poor to keep the engine wheels in repair. We shall find the best and simplest illustration of the relations of master and operative in the position of domestic servants. We will suppose that the master of a household desires only to get as much work out of his servants as he can at the rate of wages he gives. He never allows them to be idle, feeds them as poorly and lodges them as ill as they will endure, and in all things pushes his requirements to the exact point beyond which he cannot go without forcing the servant to leave him. In doing this, there is no violation on his part of what is commonly called justice. He agrees with the domestic for his whole time and service, and takes them, the limits of hardship in a treatment being fixed by the practice of other masters in his neighbourhood, that is to say by the current rate of wages for domestic labour. If the servant can get a better place, he is free to take one, and the master can only tell what is the real market value of his labour by requiring as much as he will give. This is the politico-economical view of the case, according to the doctors of the science, who assert that by this procedure the greatest average of work will be obtained from the servant, and therefore the greatest benefit to the community, and through the community by reversion to the servant himself. That, however, is not so. It would be so if the servant were an engine, of which the motive power was steam, magnetism, gravitation or any other agent of calculable force. But he being, on the contrary, an engine whose motive power is a soul, the force of this very peculiar agent, as an unknown quantity, enters into all the political economists' equations, without his knowledge, and falsifies every one of their results. The largest quantity of work will not be done by this curious engine for pay, or under pressure, or by help of any kind of fuel which may be supplied by the cauldron. It will be done only when the spirit of the creature is brought to its greatest strength by its own proper fuel, namely by the affections. Nor is this one whit less generally true because indulgence will be frequently abused and kindness met with ingratitude. 
For the servant who gently treated is ungrateful, treated ungently will be revengeful. And the man who is dishonest to a liberal master will be injurious to an unjust one. In any case, and with any person, this unselfish treatment will produce the most effective return. Treat the servant kindly, with the idea of turning his gratitude to account, and you will get, as you deserve, no gratitude, nor any value for your kindness. But treat him kindly without economical purpose, and all economical purposes will be answered. Two points offer themselves for consideration in the matter. The first, how far the rate of wages may be so regulated as to not vary with the demand for labour. The second, how far is it possible that the bodies of workmen may be engaged and maintained at such fixed rates of wages, whatever the state of trade may be, without enlarging or diminishing their number, so as to give them permanent interest in the establishment with which they are connected, like that of the domestic servants in an old family, or an esprit de corps, like that of the soldiers in a crack regiment. What? the reader perhaps answers amazedly. Pay good and bad workmen alike? Certainly. The difference between one pastor's sermons and his successors, or between one physician's opinion and another's, is far greater as respects the qualities of mind involved and far more important in result to you personally than the difference between good and bad laying of bricks. Yet you pay with equal fee, contentedly, the good and bad workmen upon your soul and the good and bad workmen upon your body. Much more may you pay contentedly, with equal fees, the good and bad workmen upon your house. By all means, choose your bricklayer. That is the proper reward of the good workman, to be chosen. The natural and right system respecting all labour is that it should be paid at a fixed rate, but the good workman employed and the bad workman unemployed. The false, unnatural and destructive system is when the bad workman is allowed to offer his work at half price, and either take the place of the good, or force him, by his competition, to work for an inadequate sum. This equality of wages then being the first object towards which we have to discover the directest available road, the second is, as above stated, that of maintaining a constant number of workmen in employment, whatever may be the accidental demand for the article they produce. I believe the sudden and extensive inequalities of demand which necessarily arise in the mercantile operations of an active nation, constitute the only essential difficulty which has to be overcome in a just organization of labor. Supposing that a man cannot live on less than a shilling a day, his seven shillings he must get, either for three days violent work or six days deliberate work. In effecting any radical changes of this kind, doubtless there would be great inconvenience and loss incurred by all the originators of movement. That which can be done with perfect convenience and without loss is not always the thing that most needs to be done, or which we are most imperatively required to do. There can be no question that the tact, foresight, decision, and other mental powers required for the successful management of a large mercantile concern would at least match the general conditions of mind required in the subordinate officers of a ship, or of a regiment or in the curate or county parish. If, therefore, all the efficient members of the so-called liberal professions are still, somehow in public estimate of honour, preferred before the head of a commercial firm, 
the reason must lie deeper than in the measurement of their several powers of mind. And the essential reason for such preference will be found to lie in the fact that the merchant is presumed to act always selfishly. His work may be very necessary to the community, but the motive of it is understood to be wholly personal. The merchant's first object in all his dealings must be, the public believe, to get as much for himself and leave as little to his neighbour or customer as possible. The public condemn the man of commerce and stamp him forever as belonging to an inferior grade of human personality. This they will find eventually they must give up doing. They must not cease to condemn selfishness, but they will have to discover a kind of commerce which is not exclusively selfish. They will find that commerce is an occupation which gentlemen will every day see more need to engage in, that sixpences have to be lost under a sense of duty, that the market may have its martyrdoms as well as the pulpit, and trade its heroisms as well as war. Observe the merchant's function is to provide for the nation. It is no more his function to get profit for himself out of that provision than it is a clergyman's function to get his stipend. The stipend is a Jew, but not the object of his life if he is a true clergyman, any more than his fee is the object of life to a true physician. Neither is his fee the object of life to a true merchant. All three, if true men, have a work to be done irrespective of fee, to be done even at any cost or for quite the contrary of fee. The pastor's function being to teach, the physicians to heal, and the merchants, as I have said, to provide. He has to understand to their very root the qualities of the things he deals in, and the means of obtaining or producing it, and he has to apply all his energy to the producing it in its perfect state and distributing it at the cheapest possible price where it is most needed. And, because the production or obtaining of any commodity involves many lives and hands, the merchant becomes in the course of his business the master and governor of large masses of men in a more direct way than a military officer or pastor. So that on him falls the responsibility for the kind of life they lead, and it becomes his duty not only to be always considering how to produce what he sells in the purest and cheapest forms, but how to make the various employments involved in the production most beneficial to the men employed. At this point I'll stop the narration of Ruskin and observe that the questions he is grappling with feel equally relevant to me today, as they no doubt were at the time they were published. I know that many craftspeople have a real struggle against cheap consumerism. In many ways, living in a future that did not heed Ruskin's advice, we find a world where the practice of genuine craft and the creation of beauty is difficult in terms of pure economic opportunities. It is these concepts in his writing that have a deep resonance with me. As a result, I'll be persevering in translating his long, complicated sentences with all kinds of classical and biblical allusions not to mention Latin and Greek, into modern English. And I hope I will do some justice to his ideas and provide some food for thought for you as you work your craft, whatever that may be. Awesome. Thanks, Ray. Yeah, it was really good. But one of the things that I always struggle with is like trying to navigate the old language. <laughs> <laughs> 
that these writers use. Um, and I know you and I, Brian, had talked a little bit because he he sent this to us, I don't know, in a very timely manner, maybe a month or two ago. Mm-hmm. And, um, mm-hmm. and I just was feeling like frustrated about maybe not catching as much as I wanted to about it. So I don't know, you had some really good thoughts about it. And I thought maybe if you just touched on those in case someone else was like me out there in the world. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I would say, uh, first of all, we should tell everyone that we're probably not, I mean, the article obviously is dealing with really broad, like socioeconomic issues Mm -hmm. and like policy. Mm Mm-hmm. And means of addressing to in means of addressing those things. And uh, Amy, uh, what did what was your degree in? (laughs) (laughs) I got a bachelor of science in art, (laughs) (laughs) and I I got a bachelor of art in chemistry. (laughs) (laughs) So, so we are. uh, I guess what we're trying to say. Well, yeah, what I'm trying to say is neither of us are particularly well qualified uh, to be talking about these policy issues. But uh, that being said, they're very, I think, beneficial to think about Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, but take what we say with a grain of salt. I would definitely trust Ray's interpretation over anything we come up with. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. Um. Um, But, I mean, I think a lot of it can... You know, obviously it was written at a time when there was like a lot of um, really bad labor laws. Or no law. law. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and um, and so really it kind of come. I feel like a lot of it can boil down to just like people are people and not machines. And so when it comes to, you know, issues of work, um make sure that you're treating your employees like people because Mm. otherwise it's not good for anybody. Like I think the impression I was getting was that during this time, uh, any kind of like merchants were seen as just like heartless cutthroats who wanted to make the max profit for the, you know, just to maximize profits. People are working, doing oftentimes you know, it's still, even though things were really getting mechanized, it still required a lot of handwork and mm-hmm. attention from people to produce these goods. It's not like, you know, have building robots to build other robots to build cars. Right. Um, and so, um, you know, there were still people who were like working really hard and really well to do things, but then getting treated terribly. And um, I think that, the people in charge of those uh, very understandably were, um, you know, people were pretty upset with them. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I think it seemed like Ruskin was just trying to say, like, people should, uh, like, you know, a true, a good merchant is the type of person who will realize that they're part of, like, a greater whole mm. and that the point isn't just to get money. Right. That, like, and this was the kind of the biggest takeaway for me was that, money is always a means it's never an end in and of itself and so when you look at it that way it's like think about what you're doing and why you're doing it and 
you know, it's okay to like, we have to use money. You can't escape using money mm-hmm. uh, right now. And so it's like, it's okay for you to like make a living doing what you're doing, but that's not why you're doing it. And so whether you're a one person operation like you or you or me, uh, we don't have any employees. <laughs> and Willow's my employee. Um, she does nothing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but it's like, you know, I feel like I always feel bad anytime I'm like starting to make a living wage and I like guilt myself where I'm just like, oh, maybe I'm overcharging for something. It's like, no, I just need to pay a phone bill. <laughs> and, like, and so it's like okay to thrive, but you just have to like make sure that um, you're keeping in mind that you're part of a community and that no one's working in a vacuum. Like whether you're a merchant in the 19th century or like a single craftsperson now, mm-hmm. you're not in a vacuum, even if you're working by yourself. The stuff that you do and where you put your money and stuff has an effect on your community. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Mm-hmm. That was the gist I was kind of getting from it. But once again, as you said, it's kind of hard to extract from a lot of the archaic language. (laughs) Right. I think it's one of those things too, where it's like, it seems when I was listening to it again for like the third time, (laughs) it almost felt as if it was such a new revolutionary thing to think of people as like just important because they're people and not because they're workers. Like, um, yeah. You know what I mean? Like, why is that so revolutionary? I, I, I <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. It's not. I've read a lot of, um, a lot of books and stuff by, like, indigenous First Nations people from around the world, and a lot of the criticisms mm-hmm. they have of that, that like, that, that it's like so foreign. Oftentimes, so like, why would you, why would you put money above family? It doesn't, or maybe, you know, I know I'm speaking in really broad terms. So some people don't have like fantastic relationships with their family or something. So don't send us letters. But like (laughs) when I was listening to it, I was thinking, oh man, this sounds, for some reason it made me think of the Wendigo, which is like an evil spirit from Algonquin tribes, um, which is mm-hmm. northern forests in North America. And mm-hmm. it's it's like this insatiable greed and cannibalism and like all of these like cultural taboos for that culture. And I'm like, I see a parallel between that that idea of like this like self-eating always consuming um idea that they were like very wary of and and the same thing that Ruskin is talking about like he's he's like hey <laughs> hey this like abstraction that you have about like acquiring and consuming more and more and more is actually really terrible and i i like yeah. um I like that he he sees that that problem and I think it's really interesting that at the time he he published a paper and he was going to do more and they were like no no we can't 
<laughs> we're going to cancel that. Like that doesn't make money. On that note too, he talks about how it's like, even if you are employing someone who is like not as good of a worker or say is, you know, because a lot of these people would have been, it's, it sounds like uh, what I'm getting from the reading is that he, the tone of it is that like, it was pretty usual to like treat, uh, granted, like, I don't know anyone who has house servants, but, Mm -hmm. uh, to treat like your, uh, like to treat them like poorly was pretty normal. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, having someone then that you like treat with respect and dignity was like pretty revolutionary. Mm -hmm. And they were like, but then Ruskin, I like that he was just like, but don't expect people's thanks just because you're like treating them normally. Mm -hmm. Like whether or not you, you know, they're like openly grateful that you decided to treat them as a person is irrelevant. Like you need to treat people as people. Right. And those rewards will be seen down the line Mm -hmm. with you just being like a decent person. Right. And he has a quote that I really liked where he was like, sometimes sixpences will have to be lost. (laughs) (laughs) And I just, (laughs) because it was just like, yeah, sometimes you might lose a little bit here and there as you're like on a quest to just be like a decent member of society. Mm -hmm. And, Mm -hmm. I definitely feel like that. Like I, I send tools to, I'm not trying to toot my own horn or anything, but that's a stupid expression, but I just used it. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But like, but it's like, I've sent tools to people that um, I don't use as much anymore Mm -hmm. that to, to people who are just starting out and low on funds because people did that for me. Mm -hmm. And could I have gone on eBay and sold them at some little profit and like had a little extra spending money. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. But that's just not at the heart of like why I'm doing what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm really grateful that I am able to, to make a little bit of like a go at it, but I feel like I would be, I'm much more happy just being a part of the community than like, that's more what I get out of it. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and then also just having like, you know, a means of creative expression is mm-hmm. I think really nice too. Yeah. But that's beside the point. Right. Well, <laughs> um, I think one of the things that I, that stood out to me when you were just talking is like, um, the point of sort of acting in the world should be something that comes from within you rather than, um, like the motivation being just totally external. You know, like, it's like, Mm -hmm. oh, no, I'm a good person because I get this reward from outside of myself. And it's like, well, Mm -hmm. that actually is not a great way to just kind of be a person. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) Which which maybe kind of cracking myself up. But like, (laughs) but like, it's a false, it's a false motive. Like. If you're like, oh, no, Mm -hmm. I just, you know, I'm a doctor and I only am a doctor because I get paid a lot of money money. from drug companies or something or like it gives me a big, you know, status and I have nice cars and stuff like that's a terrible reason to be in the healing business. (laughs) When I also like, too, that he's writing this stuff and he's known primarily as like an art critic, (laughs) you know, (laughs) right, right. <laughs> different times. Different times. <laughs> um, 
Oh, well, also before we wrap it up, maybe we should share that uh, Ray sent us a few thoughts, but there's that one in particular that really stood out to both of us. Mm-hmm. What do you think, Umbo? Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, I'll I'll go ahead and read it. Okay, sure. so Ray said, I think at its heart, the question's about the creation of meaningful work that will provide a fair living for the creator and create lasting products that are not thrown away and replaced in a mad consumerism that requires an upgrade next year and a waste dump for last year are timeless. Yes. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Ray. (laughs) Right. (laughs) We've touched on this in several different angles already, um, but he does does a really good job of like making it concise. (laughs) It (laughs) took us like seven minutes to kind of get around to it, but it's... um, (laughs) Yeah, I, I, one of the important things that I think a craftsperson can do is to point out the inconsistencies and like bad parts of huge um, automated kind of industry and economics mm-hmm. evenly, like even it's just, um, it's one of those like really weird, delicate balances that you don't know you're participating in until you become a craftsperson. <laughs> And you're like, oh my gosh, like I'm not going to, you know, once you start to learn how to make something wooden, then when you go to a big box store and see all of the like weird particle board laminate furniture that is going to fall apart in one year, you're, you're like, you can't, you can't do the like waste dump for last year kind of stuff. Like it's got to be. Yeah. Something if you're going to put your money into it, it's got to be something that's going to last for a little bit longer than a year or two. Like and then you almost start to get offended by how much money you've spent on things that are poorly made. And you're like, "Wait, what was I even paying for?" <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you're paying for those people who who only see money as like the the product, like that's the the end product, you know? They don't they don't if yeah. they cared about what they were making, if they cared about craftsmanship, if they cared about quality or the people who were assembling it, things would be different. Like we should not have manufactured obsolescence. Like it just doesn't, it's not good. It fills, you know, dumpsters all the time and it doesn't need to. Well, I just feel like it's like when you're buying something, even if it's something small, like buy it for the future. Like don't mm-hmm. just buy it for whatever mm-hmm. like moment you're in. It's like buy it with the intention of having it around for a while because it's going to be around for a while right. as an object right. taking up space somewhere, even if you get rid of it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. So yeah, <laughs> on that happy note. <laughs> right? right before Christmas. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Yeah, moving right into the holiday season. <laughs> um we encourage you to buy, buy, buy. Right. Uh, <laughs> Thank you so much, Ray, for reaching out to us. That was super nice. And yeah. uh maybe we'll have to commission you to do other readings, but yeah. Also, Amy has an amazing reading voice. Oh. <gasps> what if you guys read something together? <laughs> right. 
I don't know how that would work with the South African time change. <laughs> but yeah, well, we hope that uh, some of what we said was vaguely coherent and that uh, <laughs> it was at least able to give you all some food for thought. Right. And, um, and yeah, thanks, of course, to all of the usual suspects, to uh, mm-hmm. Brad Vetter and Luke Mitchell and the High Divers. Mm-hmm. Um, Ray. Oh, right. And Ray, of course. Yeah. Um, even though Justin wasn't in this uh, side project. Thank you, Justin, for all the work you do for the podcast. <laughs> yes. And thank you to our listeners. Yeah. And our sponsors. Yes. Thank you to everybody. And who else can we thank? I'm going to thank the cardinal I just saw flying out my window. Oh, that's nice. I, all I see is a fly <laughs> in my window. <laughs> thank you, fly. <laughs> You've been-